0: I want to introduce you to author Shep Siegel, who grew up in San Francisco uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. This was a time of massive social change and utopian ideas. And his latest work takes a look at the idea of how playfulness is one of today's most underrated character traits. He joins us live in studio ahead of a reading tonight at Biblioasis in Windsor and tomorrow at Barnes & Noble in Rochester Hills. Yes, there is still a Barnes & Noble in Rochester Hills. (laughs) And also in studio is the wonderful Amanda LeClaire with me. Hello, Amanda.
1: Hey, good afternoon, Ryan. Uh, So, Ryan, Shepard's new book is called disruptive play the trickster in politics and culture and what we're gonna be talking about right now is this idea of play and playfulness but not in the competitive sense not where someone's trying to win like when you play a game in sports but something else uh, entirely so Shepard thanks so much for stopping by the studio today
2: thanks so much for having me
1: so what is it that you mean by disruptive play and and what kind of benefits are you saying that it has for someone personally and, and for society
2: well sure you know uh, play is something that's getting investigated by a lot of folks. There's uh, play scholars at our universities and also people who work with very young children and their playfulness. Um, So the scholars have come up with like over 300 different forms of play. And I don't think I'm going to go through them all today, (laughs) (laughs) but I do want to talk about three of them. Uh, The first one's called original play. And this is something that all animals do except mature adults adult humans don't do it as much, but little infants do. And so we all know that, you know, the infant child is more vulnerable than other animals, but the infant child is also more like other animals than at any other time in our lives. So we know how to play, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call it frolic, you know, and you, you don't play in order to win or lose, like you just said, but you just play to have fun, to enjoy. And then that's, so that's that first kind of play, original play, the, the second type is called cultural play and this is what happens by the age of three or four years old. We get parents and we've got our parents and we've got culture and they start observing the, the child's play and they say, well, you know, you could turn that into a game. You could keep score. You could have winners and losers. And so enters this other kind of play called cultural play, which I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. It's how we get achievement. It's how things get better. It, it, is, it is fun, too. Games are fun. I uh, watched a great football game on TV last night, in fact, and it was a lot of fun. But, but what does happen is in a culture like ours that is overly obsessed with achievement and with winning, um, we lose sight of that original play, it kind of gets squeezed out, and 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 so I'm a proponent of rediscovering and and connecting with that original uh, play, and and so. In my book, you know, I ask the question, well, what happens when you get a grown-up who has retained the ability to be playful the way they were as a very young child? And the obvious answer is you get certain comedians. You get Groucho Marx. You get Jonathan Winters. You get you get Robin Williams. You get Andy Kaufman. Uh, but you don't have to be a celebrity to be that kind of a grown-up. And, and, and what I found is that that kind of a person um, is uh, – going to encounter, consciously or unconsciously, the trickster archetype, the oldest archetype known to humanity. But to get to your question about what is disruptive play, so disruptive play is what happens when you take the idea of original play, you you take this non-competitive playfulness, and you introduce it into the environment or the arena, if you will, of cultural play. And that disrupts the game. You could call that person a spoil sport. You could call them a heretic. You could call them a prophet. You could call them a radical. But that's a person who introduces the non-competitive. Let me give you a very banal example. And harkens back to the National Football League. Back in, I think it was in the late 70s, there were this phenomenon of streaking, you know. And so here you have this highly competitive game of winners and losers, a National Football League. Millions of dollars are involved, careers are involved, you know, people are betting on it. It's very serious cultural play. And some guy decides to be silly, takes off all his clothes, and runs across the field. So that's a rather banal example of disruptive play, but it gives you the idea. The other example I like to share is when, uh, during the Vietnam War, um, Abbie Hoffman was part of a demonstration that was going to encircle the Pentagon, and this is America, you have the right to protest, you have the right to demonstrate. So he actually got a meeting with the generals. and. Uh, and and said, you know, I'm, we're going to be leading this demonstration. They take out their pencils and start taking notes. They say, okay, you can do that. He says, and we're going to have ten, twenty, thirty thousand people. And they say, okay, you can do that. He says, we're going to encircle the Pentagon. They said, fine. He said, and then we're going to exorcise its demons and levitate it three hundred <laughs> feet off the ground. And at that was the point he kind of lost them, you know. And they said, well, permit denied, you can't do that. And and he said, well, look, look, I'm a reasonable man. Let's negotiate this. How about thirty feet? Could you You see your way to a permit to levitate the Pentagon 30 feet (laughs) off the ground. And so there's a form of disruptive play. The most toxic and overdone form of cultural play is is war. And so to be – to inject original play, hey, I just want to have fun, into the most serious form of cultural play, war – is yeah. a great example of disruptive play.
1: So what I'm hearing is that this 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 way of playing and this idea of the trickster is to take people out of their roles that they've you know inserted themselves into and are kind of being ruled by as well. And I, I have a big question for you, but Ryan wants to get in on something as well.
0: Here, well, you're talking about disruptive play and use the example of someone running onto a field of a sporting event. Sure. And, and the thing that immediately came to my mind is like the idea of catharsis, like mm. catharsis at someone else's expense isn't really gratifying in that way, because it comes at the cost of of somebody else. And I think with disruptive play, I think sometimes people may, you know, it might be the best day of your life when you're doing disruptive play, but that disruptive play could be someone's Worst day of their life. I I keep Mm -hmm. thinking of the example of people going into bars or restaurants on like scavenger hunts, and kind of asking people in the restaurant like a a silly question because they have to. They're doing disruptive play, but they're doing it at the cost of others. So, what is that fine line of being able to play in a way that doesn't leave someone hanging or out or or feeling kind of left behind?
2: Yeah, I, I think yeah, that's a really interesting question, and you're introducing the. The idea of uh, morality and ethics and when it, when is when and is it and isn 't it ethical and so i 'm going to hearken back to the the, the trickster archetypes and the folklore. Every culture on the planet has a trickster demigod of some kind, and uh, sometimes they can they can seem kind of mean, you know sometimes they 're tricks. Aren't, aren't fun when you play a trick on someone else it can be it can be rough on the other person and so they're, they, they, they're not moral beings. Um, they're premoral. I wouldn't call them unethical, but I would call them premoral just as the infant baby you wouldn't call an infant baby moral or immoral. They haven't had that introduced into their lives yet. then again they're not capable of playing tricks on others and and so uh, so w- what you get is if you ask a trickster to do something one way or the other they're not going to question whether it's good or bad they're just going to ask whether it's fun or not and sometimes it is fun at at the expense of others now if that becomes their obsession it's more like if it's incidental well it happened and it's too bad um, but if it becomes an obsession then they've kind of left that aura Of 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 true uh, true tricksterism, right? Um, I want to say more about it, but your question is just is so is 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 so intriguing. Um, What happens in trickster folktales is they they venture out, they play tricks, but also one of their other attributes is tricks get played on them sometimes. So the trickster is willing to suffer some humiliation. In their uh, in their pursuit of play, and um, and they also are there to mock power. So uh, and what will eventually and also sometimes their tricks backfire and they and their tricks get played on themselves. The shortcut to explaining all this is Bugs Bunny. Okay, Bugs Bunny is the great American trickster, and you'll see in Bugs Bunny cartoons that sometimes they might seem a little bit mean, you know, and involve acme. Explosives or something, you know, but it is a cartoon and so forth. Uh, But generally, Bugs is is an innocuous character. He doesn't set out to hurt people. He just sets out to have fun. But what will happen in the and it's called a trickster cycle for a reason. It is a cycle. Is eventually the trickster will come across some challenge in, in in their in their in these episodes and. In the course of that challenge, they will discover morality. So trickster mythology is about going from a premoral state to the very beginnings of of morality. Um, One of the great examples that comes to mind right away is if you're familiar with the story of Tom Cruise and his Scientology video— and how Anonymous got involved in that. So Tom Cruise, most people know, famous actor, also a Cy- in part of the Church of Scientology, and he made this video, and the intention of the video was that it would only be shown to other members of the church. Well, some hackers got a hold of it, people from Anonymous, and they started posting it. Well, one of the other things the Church of Scientology has is a whole army of lawyers and they started suing, and they they got the FBI got involved, and a lot of these hackers, a lot of them were just kids having fun, not deliberately trying to hurt anybody, just having fun. What is their term for the lulls? And uh, um, and some of them started getting busted. Some 19-year-olds would went to jail. Um, and so what happened is anonymous which to that up to that point had been very premoral you know the internet was just this big playground and there was a lot of nasty ugly mean stuff that happened and there was a lot of really funny stuff and there was a lot of good stuff it was just this whole mishmash in their battle against the church of scientology all of a sudden anonymous discovered morality it's amazing because it's this 21st century parable that harkens back to the oldest stories we know in humanity. And they went through the trickster cycle. They discovered morality, and all of a sudden, we all we know what we're not. We're not the Church of Scientology. We believe in sharing information. Um, uh, we believe in science, not science fiction, as L. Ron Hubbard, you know, as that's how he uh, promoted the Church. And then in very shortly thereafter, uh, Anonymous kind of broke off from 4chan and— During the Arab Spring, when the Egyptian and Tunisian governments took the internet down, Anonymous was there to help the demonstrators and the the people rebelling against those governments to uh, put the internet back up because that's how they were organizing their demonstrations. So it's one example of the trickster cycle. And I I hope that provides a good answer to your question.
1: Yeah. Now, we've been talking a lot about these uh, cultural figures. You mentioned Abby Hoffman, Robin Williams, Bugs Bunny. But in the title of your book itself, it's the trickster in politics and culture. So Mm -hmm. as we're heading into uh, what is going to be a a wild ride of a political season into the next election, how does the the trickster archetype, uh, the lessons of it, what should we be taking from it into this next year
2: okay so um so my hopes for the readers of this book is that i'm providing a lot of background and i i don't delve too much into current events but i do go up to about 2012 and then i uh, recapitulate some episodes of black mirror the bbc series um that go beyond uh 2012 but um I think the example that uh, that I one that I hope readers will pay attention to is is Dada, um, and, and that a lot of this gets into the relationship between art and commerce, and eventually you can connect the dots to our political realities, uh, because if you if you if you get a, a, a textbook on art history, you're going to see Dada as this art movement that came after Impressionism and before Surrealism, but what might be missing is that that was only half the story. Dada was an anti-war movement. The Dadas were the first hippies. Um, Because what happened is Dada came into being during one of the bloodiest and stupidest wars we've ever, that's been waged by humanity, which was World War I. And they took flight from the uh, European countries that were partisans in that war, and they took flight to Switzerland. And so you have this really magnificent melding of the artist's state of mind and politics and, and and so forth and and of course commerce becomes part of it too because um uh, impressionism had become very commercially successful it's the most expensive art in the world today the data was very deliberately diy anti-commerce they would destroy their own art they would just do flimsy little magazines that were meant to be consumed immediately and they would they would do actions like go into a restaurant and just parade around at a restaurant which you reminded me of with your anecdote but it was in a time of war and they were promoting peace they had they were they were trickster types in that they were in it for the fun they had invented the art of the absurd to mirror one of the most absurd wars that had ever been waged, um, and and so my belief is that is that art can make that statement, but it always struggles against, if not against war, against commerce, and um, and and I'm looking, f- I'm not anti-commerce, but I'm looking for a different balance in our society, and that's where the political uh, ideas come in. Let's, let me make it real practical. Mm-hmm. How many artists make millions of dollars a year and how many artists make under $30,000 a year? And if the commerce-art relationship wasn't the way it was, there might not be so many people making so many millions and there might be more artists – making more than $30,000 in a year.
1: Yeah. We're talking to Shepard Siegel, he is the author of the book Disruptive Play: The Trickster in Politics and Culture and he is going to be speaking tonight at Biblioasis in Windsor and tomorrow night at Barnes and Noble in Rochester Hills. Now Shepard, I have a I want to go back to Ryan's question again. So as far as as far as the quote-unquote victims of the trickster mm. um, does there need to be one for the lesson, for the cycle to to continue and complete? And if you're not in on the joke with the trickster, are you a victim of
2: it? Mm-hmm. I, I love the question because um, because disruptive play, anyway, which embodies tricksterism, has really flourishes when it has a foil, right? So Dada was really at its most potent during World War I. When World War I ended, it kind of dissolved and it retreated from the political arena into the subconscious and you had surrealism in the dream world. It still had a progressive political agenda, but it was less activist, if you will. And, and the same thing happened, you know, there's this quote attributed to Mark Twain. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And two or three generations later, you had you know the Vietnam War, and you had folks who were also a very serious time, but they used playfulness and fun to mock that war in 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 terms of what the hippies were doing and their and the yippies in particular in their anti-war uh, antics. Right? Vietnam War ended. The victim, if you will, of their of their disruptive play, and the movement kind of re- again retreated into the the realm of the mind instead of the political arena. So you got the personal growth movement, you got est, and and and, and a lot of fascination with um, uh, uh, Buddhism and and, hin- and Hinduism and so forth, right? So to answer your question directly, this is the question I'm also fascinated with is what does trickster energy look like when there is no victim, when there is no foil for it? And this is why I'm very intrigued by Burning Man because I think what Burning Man attempts to do or at least attempted to do in its early and middle years um, is to release that energy – out in the middle of the desert, where there is no foil, there's no victim, there's no enemy. But and, and what and so what does trickster energy look like then? And when the when the um, the consciousness of the artist has got a lot of room to roam and be playful. Mm,
0: interesting.
2: So, and I think it's a real, real, real good model. And um, yeah, I, uh it, 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 t- Burning Man has many, many dimensions, but one of the ones, because of my own heritage, shall we say is is, uh, is in relationship to the Grateful Dead and so people would go to Grateful Dead concerts, and they just didn't want them to end. They were having so much fun, they were having such a good time. And the next thing you know you 've got these folks approaching vagrancy, if you will they're like you know they 've got their buses and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they're scraping by just to get a ticket. And, and and they're following the Grateful Dead all over, and pretty soon it got kind of ugly because there was no infrastructure to support this, and and and, and the and the musicians are going, we're musicians, man, we're not, we can't provide police, we can't provide hygiene for you in between concerts and all that, and I think that was part of the inspiration for Burning Man. They said, well, what if, what if we set things up? So that there was just barely enough infrastructure but as few rules as possible and people just came here to have fun and instead of lasting the two, three, four hours of a concert, what if it lasted three, four, five days? And who knows? Maybe we'll get something that lasts three, four, five months.
1: Interesting. Thank you so much. Shepard Siegel is the author that we've been speaking with. He is the uh, he just wrote a new book called Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. You can go and pick his brain tonight at Biblioasis in Windsor or tomorrow night at Barnes and Noble in Rochester Hills. This is Culture Shift. Thank you so much, Shepard.
2: Thank you for having me.